From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Housing is the bedrock of American society and one of the major determinants for life outcomes like health, income, and educational opportunity. Because of its importance, housing has long been the site of discriminatory policies aimed at marginalizing Black and brown people in America, be it through zoning, redlining, crime-free housing ordinances, racial steering, and more. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 aimed to address this history and outlaw discrimination. But vague guidelines and weak enforcement mechanisms left a lot unaddressed. This January, the Biden administration reinstated the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule, which adds federal heft to the Fair Housing Act and mandates that localities submit plans for actively addressing segregation and proposes that cities and states that fail to meaningfully work towards their stated goal could face a loss of funding. Throughout her career in civil rights law, ACLU's president, Deborah Archer, has studied housing discrimination and infrastructure. She's the associate dean and co-director of clinical and advocacy programs, a professor of clinical law, and a co-faculty director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law, all at the NYU School of Law. And we're so excited to have her here today to give us a primer on housing discrimination and explain why it's a part of the ACLU's push for equitable systems across so many facets of society. President Archer, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with a really basic question because housing is not an issue that we've talked about extensively on the podcast or that we cover extensively in our work at the ACLU. And it's really simple. Why is housing so foundational to our prosperity, to our success, and to our uh, ability to live a good life in America? Uh, And it absolutely is foundational. I don't think anyone is going to be surprised to hear that the United States is profoundly segregated along racial lines. And at a time when this country's population has become more racially diverse, extreme residential segregation on the basis of race really persists. We attend separate schools, live in separate neighborhoods. We attend different churches and shop at uh, different stores. And the reality is that you cannot separate the places people have access to from the opportunities that people have access to. There really is in this country a geography Um, to opportunity. So this rigid racial segregation results in social, economic, and resource inequality with white communities of opportunity on the one hand and many communities of color without access to quality schools or jobs, without access to transportation or healthcare on the other hand, really without access again to opportunity. And the cumulative effects of this segregation on Black people and other people of color are profound. Research consistently shows that Black people and Latinx people living in racially segregated communities with that concentrated poverty that often accompanies the the segregation have really limited life opportunities. As you said, residential segregation impacts an individual's access to quality education, employment, um, government services, to social capital, 
And so in America, we often see isolated, over-policed, and under-resourced communities of color. And that's a legacy and a reality of housing discrimination. Thank you so much for that. This is actually a fundamental human right. um, And it should be seen as that, right? Because it impacts so many other parts of our life. It's so fundamental that we often take it for granted. And it's not a part of the conversation when we talk about critical civil rights and human rights issues. But as you said, it is fundamental and something we should be paying close attention to. I want to dig a little deeper into housing and the history here. So in 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act, which was part of the Civil Rights Act, into law. And prior to this law, housing discrimination was not accidental, but an active goal of policies passed to control and confine the influx of Black Americans moving during the Great Migration from the South to urban centers in the North. Can you give us a picture of what the conditions were, what the various um, mechanisms of housing discrimination that existed at that time that the Fair Housing Act was actually responding to? Absolutely. I could probably teach an entire semester on just this, this question of the housing discrimination that the Fair Act for Housing Act responded to, uh, but we'll try to condense that a little bit here. Housing discrimination was and remains a problem throughout the United States. So every part of the country has used different tools to um, really entrench segregation in housing. And the United States has a long and truly complicated history of racial segregation in housing that was enforced through public policies, through individual acts of discrimination, uh, through mob violence. Uh, So first, of course, there was violence intimidation from the very beginning. Uh, The Ku Klux Klan, uh, neighborhood associations, white supremacists of all stripes were focused on maintaining residential segregation and its link to educational segregation. Uh, A neighborhood in Birmingham, Alabama, became known as Dynamite Hill because they repeatedly bombed houses that were purchased by Black people in traditionally white neighborhoods as part of a racial terror campaign. This history included uh, sundown towns where whole towns excluded Black people through a combination of discriminatory local laws, intimidation, and violence. And the term came from signs posted to let Black people know that they needed to leave the town by sundown. It was telling them that you can come here to work for us, but under no circumstances can you make this town your home. Of course, it includes individual acts of discrimination, Individual people declining to rent their houses to people of color, declining to sell their houses to people of color. We had real estate companies that would steer people of different races to different communities, trying to ensure the continuation of racial segregation. We have exclusionary zoning laws enacted by local communities that are designed to keep out affordable housing and to keep out racial integration. And of course, there were specific measures that were focused on Black people who wanted to buy houses, both in Black communities and in white communities. We think about the Federal Housing Administration that subsidized mass production builders of entire suburbs like Levittown, New York. And it did so with a requirement that no homes be sold to Black people. And every home in these subdivisions had a clause in the deed that prohibited resale to Black people. 
So really government at all levels were involved in enforcing the restrictive deeds that were in place. Even judges took the position that these restrictions didn't violate the Constitution because they were ultimately private agreements. There were federal mortgage programs that would only lend money to prospective Black homeowners homeowners if the property they sought to buy was in an already segregated neighborhood. We had the practice of, of redlining where we created these maps, these documents to show how loan officers and appraisers evaluated the mortgage lending risk during the era immediately before the surge of suburbanization. And those maps were color-coded to indicate where it was safe to give loans. And anywhere Black people and other people of color live was colored red to indicate that the Federal Housing Administration appraiser should consider the loans to be too risky to give in that neighborhood. One of the areas of my research is the federal interstate highway system. And most people don't think that it played a role in housing and segregation, but highways were intentionally built through and around Black communities to physically entrench racial inequality and racial segregation. It was a post-Jim Crow tool as the more traditional tools of segregation were being challenged and struck down uh, by, by the courts. And so the Fair Housing Act was designed to address all of this through a multi-pronged attack, trying to get at the many, many ways, the many tools the country was using to further entrench residential segregation. It really sounds like a system of death by a thousand cuts. Just the amount of different kinds of mechanisms that were used to discriminate. We had this act that was passed in 1968 And it covers most housing in the United States. Its intention is to help eliminate discriminatory housing practices that we just talked about by holding counties, cities, and localities to create more affordable housing and also to monitor the community's housing practices as a whole. So private lenders and landlords are also liable too, um, all with the intention to help desegregate communities. Has the Fair Housing Act been successful? We are in 2023. Um... This was passed in 1968. Great question. Has it been successful? I think it has been one of the more successful uh, tools because of the way that it was multi-pronged. Certainly the Fair Housing Act addressed and was used to try to combat traditional acts of intentional discrimination. Make it harder for individuals to say, I'm not going to sell to you. Right. Make it harder for individuals to say, I'm not going to rent to you. And so we had this tool that has had an impact. And we have seen more integration from it, but not a a fix. The Act also provides for two different types of claims that challenge practices that have a disproportionate um, adverse effect on uh, people of color. They have a disparate impact claim and a segregative effects claim. And segregative effects, because it's not a term many people use, um, it's a cause of action that prohibits policies or practices that harm communities by creating, increasing, reinforcing, um, or perpetuating segregated housing patterns. And it doesn't require either of these. They don't require to show intentional discrimination. And so in that way, the Act recognizes that conduct that has the necessary and foreseeable consequence of perpetuating segregation can be as impactful as purposeful discriminatory conduct. And I think that that's been incredibly important for us to recognize the need to challenge individual acts of intentional discrimination, but also the the broader disparate impact that these tools have. 
Uh, the challenge has been that both all of those kinds of causes of action require individuals to enforce the Fair Housing Act. Uh, and it takes time and effort, challenges of proof. It takes money and resources to bring litigation. And so um, to the extent that we have forced communities to take their responsibility more seriously, I think the act has been less successful. Interesting. So essentially, you're saying litigation is available for people to use if they've been discriminated against. It has a bit of teeth in preventing and prohibiting this kind of meaningful discrimination or disparate impact, but it's not doing enough to create incentive or there's not enough pressure that the federal government is putting on communities to overtly be advocating for equitable practices or developing equitable policies? Is that a good summation? I think it's one thing to say, let's challenge these individual acts of discrimination. But it's like when we talk about systemic inequality, challenging those individual acts of discrimination don't get at the systemic inequality. And I think the federal government has a role here to play in forcing, encouraging, pushing localities to really address um, their policies and practices that are perpetuating over decades uh, this, uh, this deep segregation and separation. Thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's really important for people listening to take into account like, okay, there has been some change, some positive change, but we can actually do much more. I want to talk about how this all relates to income inequality and affordable housing and one in four renters spends half of their income on rent and no state has enough available housing for the lowest income renters. We're seeing this pop up all across the country. How do these statistics speak to potential weaknesses or shortcomings of the act? It does speak to a challenge in the act that the act wasn't designed to address all of the inequalities and all the challenges that we face uh, in housing. And so I don't think the Fair Housing Act is necessarily the most powerful tool in addressing the fact that rents are increasing at such incredible rates and that salaries are not keeping up, that people um, don't have the ability to afford to live in communities uh, any longer after they have been there for decades. We have other tools, but I don't know that the Fair Housing Act is the most powerful to get at those. Uh, it's not that the Fair Housing Act has nothing to do with it. A lot of the challenges around creating affordable housing within a community is zoning related. And the zoning laws, the kind of discriminatory localism and exclusionary localism that we see come out through local ordinances and laws that make it difficult to build affordable housing. It's often connected to issues around race. Um, in that way, fair, the Fair Housing Act uh, could have a role to play. We also see a lot of discrimination around source of income. People don't want to rent to someone based on the source of their income. If they're getting their income from child support or from uh, a public assistance, uh, again, there are not wonderful tools uh, to, to address that, but there are some tools. The Fair Housing Act could help in that respect a, um, a little bit. In more ways, state laws um, can help in, in that respect. So as I said, the Fair Housing Act is just not the most powerful tool to address that kind of inequality that you're seeing. And it means that we have to advocate for other laws that can better protect people's human right to access affordable housing. 
That's a good distinction to make. Um, So I want to narrow in on an area of research that has been important to you, which is looking into how crime-free ordinances or no-nuisance ordinances contribute to housing discrimination, punish people who have been implicated in the criminal legal system. It's also an intersection that we share with our women's rights work and our racial justice work. So just to begin, what are crime-free ordinances? Yeah, you know, I think it links to a tool of racial segregation that I didn't mention earlier, and that is pulling on this false narrative of excessive Black criminality as a means to justify housing segregation. And we see that in crime-free housing ordinances, our local ordinances and programs um, that really are at the intersection of housing and the criminal legal system. They are laws that limit access to housing for people who have had some contact with the criminal legal system. And that's a wide spectrum from people who have been arrested and convicted to people who have just been arrested or people who are just suspected of having been involved with the criminal legal system to people who call the police for assistance. And what those ordinances are doing is bringing the racial discrimination that we know is well-documented in the criminal legal system into the housing market, into the private housing market, and evicting people who they believe have been, are suspected of having criminal involvement, people who have called the police for assistance one too many times. Uh, it is forcing landlords to engage in criminal background screenings that um, exclude many people from accessing housing in the community. And although it is titled crime-free housing ordinances, we know that these laws are not effective at deterring crime in communities, but what they are effective at is deterring integration and disproportionately excluding people of color because of discrimination in the criminal legal system. And we've also seen that it impacts people who have been calling for police assistance or police have been called to their house for domestic um, violence incidents, for women who have called for assistance for people with disabilities. All of those folks are being targeted and harmed uh, by crime-free housing ordinances. And it strikes me that crime-free ordinances are just unbelievable punishment to communities of people who are already being so oppressed and marginalized. It just feels so outrageous, I think, for people who have never heard of crime-free ordinances. To even note that like a domestic violence call would be punished by an eviction because they called for police help. It's interesting because it does target, it targets many people, but targets people who are in need of housing support The ACLU had a case where uh, a mother was evicted from her home because they said the police came to your house too many times and your home was a location of criminal activity. And the police had, in fact, come to her house several times, but they came because her white neighbors kept calling the police on her. Uh, And that became a weapon to remove her from the community. And under the housing ordinance, her landlord was compelled to evict her. Uh, And so we are targeting a full range of people. We are targeting uh, people who have not had any role in the alleged criminal activity. So they're problematic on many ways, but they're also incredibly 
popular. States all around the country have crime-free housing ordinances. I don't think a lot of communities understand what is being done, the harm that is being done in their name. Does the Fair Housing Act apply here? Why has that not prevented this kind of thing? I also read about Violence Against Women Act and that that should also be addressing crime-free housing ordinances. There's some recourse. Um, If you can get to court, to, to challenge that practice, to challenge the ordinance. But what it does not do is provide some kind of affirmative tool to prevent communities from adopting it to begin with, uh, to prevent the proliferation of crime-free housing ordinances. And so instead we are faced with, you know, it's not one federal law that you can attack. It's not even 50 state laws that you attack. Crime-free housing ordinances and programs are adopted city by city and town by town. And so it is this incredibly challenging litigation right now to challenge each individual crime-free housing ordinance. It's a long and hard fight. And so hopefully we will uh, use other tools. But in terms of whether or not crime-free housing ordinances are prohibited by the Fair Housing Act, I believe they are. I think there are constitutional provisions uh, around um, intentional discrimination. A lot of these ordinances are adopted under circumstances that make it clear that was the intention, not just the impact, the intention to exclude and target people of color. And in those situations, you have constitutional uh, provisions that may come in play. And you mentioned the Violence Against Women Act also has provisions, but again, they require someone to sue to enforce those provisions, to enforce those rights. I want to turn to what is new and recent that we've heard on the housing front from a national perspective. Advocates are hoping that the Fair Housing Act might finally have more teeth and more ability to hold localities accountable from a federal stance. This January, the Biden administration reinstated the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule, which is a 248-page rule that gives communities more guidelines and increases accountability mechanisms. Are we encouraged by this movement from the Biden administration? Give us your sense of what this could potentially do and if it is actually helpful. One of the biggest obstacles to fair housing has been the federal government's failure to enforce all components of the Fair Housing Act vigorously. And the affirmatively furthering fair housing component of the Fair Housing Act is the piece that the federal government has really not vigorously uh, tried to enforce in any consistent and long-term way. So under this new rule uh, implementation of this provision of the Fair Housing Act, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, also called HUD, any grantee of HUD would submit equity plans every five years for approval. And the equity plan would contain that locality's analysis of fair housing issues confronting their community, would establish goals and strategies to remedy those issues in real and concrete ways. And so that equity plan would include a discussion of what are the demographics and parameters of segregation and integration in that community. They would talk about racially or ethnically concentrated areas of poverty. Uh, They would talk about asset to community assets and community institutions, access to affordable housing opportunities, access to home ownership and economic opportunity, and policies and practices beyond those that are affecting fair housing. The plan would also need to include a description of a robust community engagement plan from the beginning of the process 
to the end of the process. Far too often we are trying to address these problems that deeply impact community members without involving community members. So program participants would have to engage with the public during the development of the equity plan to help community members articulate the challenges and the goals and the tools. And while the equity plan is in effect, program participants would have to engage with their communities at least annually uh, to gauge progress, to discuss challenges, to refine goals. Uh, The community engagement must involve reaching out to local leaders and community-based organizations who know a lot about what's going on in their community. They know what the challenges are. They know what might um, work. And then participants have to submit annual progress reports to HUD. Both the equity plans and the annual progress evaluations are going to be posted online. And so that is going to be really helpful in helping community members know what's supposed to be being done in their community and helping HUD hold people accountable. Of course, there is power in money. And so failure to comply with all of this could result in the loss of HUD funding, which is really important to a lot of communities. Wow. I mean, it just is so interesting to me that so much of our federal policy is just trying to navigate ways and provide mechanisms to hold local localities uh, accountable. And that like just data transparency itself is so huge. It does sound like that this is some sort of significant step forward. This new Biden rule builds off of one of the Obama administration's rules that was proposed in 2015, which the NAACP described as the administration's most bold anti-discrimination policy. But most Americans never heard much about what that Obama-era rule targeting uh, the Fair Housing Act was able to accomplish. What can you tell us about that? Uh, That's right. It does build off of what the Obama administration did uh, in 2015 in instituting a, a much stronger affirmatively furthering for housing rule that required localities to open a public process in their communities to address housing inequities and to target federal resources in a way that would increase access to housing um, choice and opportunity. And the Trump administration repealed the rule. They did not allow that rule to be implemented and to fully blossom and show the potential. But for the short window of time that it was there, it showed some progress as some communities began to engage in that process to look at what they were doing and what they could be doing. And so that little window where we had the Obama rule in place and what progress we saw coupled with the kind of extra layers that the Biden administration have added on top of that really provides some hope uh, that this could be uh, transformational. So I want to talk about the Trump administration movement. They never implemented that rule, as you mentioned. And in 2020, in amidst the resurgence of the movement for Black Lives, they decided to replace it with the 2020 Preserving Communities and Neighborhood Choice Rule. Now, that's no longer on the books, but what did that rule do? And what legacy was the term neighborhood choice tapping into? <laughs> and that last piece of that question is really the crux of it, isn't it? And of course, it was a dog whistle to appeal to white suburban voters who feared integration. 
it, it was effectively pre-approval for uh, predominantly white communities to take whatever measures they wanted to, to keep people out of their communities, to fence off integration. And the neighborhood choice phrase that he used in the title of the program that he adopted to replace it really invokes the idea that white communities shouldn't be forced to live with people of color. Wealthy communities shouldn't be forced to live with lower income people. And throughout American history, anti-integration principles have been framed by the concept of choice, that white people should have the choice to live where they want to live, to sell their property to whom they want to sell to, to send their children to schools where they want and with who they want, to preserve their choice to live racially segregated lives. Trump's policy appealed to that ideal by invoking the words neighborhood choice. This is about all of us, too. Yes, it's about the administrations and what they're doing, but it's also about our ability as local citizens of our towns and communities to be advocating affirmatively for practices and laws that will integrate our communities. That that's actually part of our moral call as well. Right. I think it's um, absolutely correct. And we far too often use our privilege to protect our privilege. And instead of using our privilege and our access to fight for equity, inclusion, to fight for justice, to fight for people who don't have access to those resources. We talk about implicit bias, but that's an example of where some of that implicit bias uh, is at play. I talked about the ubiquitous use of the narrative of excessive Black criminality. And that's an example of how that narrative can seep into us and have an impact on our behavior, even when we when we know better. So I think one of the fears around this Biden administration rule is that it could suffer the same fate as the Obama rule, which, you know, essentially died too soon due to the Trump administration killing it. Desegregation efforts take years and years, and these efforts need the time to thrive. So with the 2024 elections on the horizon, is that a fear or concern of yours? How vulnerable do you think this movement by the Biden administration is? So you talked about desegregation efforts taking years. What takes even longer are integration efforts. And so what we're looking for is not only um, to challenge segregation, but to facilitate and block the barriers to integration. And it takes a long time. And you're right. The, the regime requires active federal enforcement over years, and that is vulnerable to changes in administrations. It's especially true today because many Republican politicians say that racism doesn't exist and doesn't don't view this as a valuable use of time and, and resources. Uh, so I don't know if this is going to be a big issue in the 2024 campaigns, if it's going to be a talking point in the 2024 campaigns. It could become central to an appeal to suburban white voters uh, to get them out, appealing to their fears uh, over their principles. But what is clear to me is that that election will impact whether or not we continue on a path to aggressively enforce every provision in the Fair Housing Act or whether we take another step uh, backwards. I want to address how this fits into the ACLU's work. This month, 
we're launching our second wave of our systemic equality campaign. It's covering housing discrimination in the second wave. We're also focusing on many other important issue areas. What are some components of the campaign that you're excited about? Like the other iteration of our systemic equality work, this iteration aims to ensure we have full and equal access to education, jobs, housing, voting rights, and more to help build better and more equitable futures. Focusing on the housing work that we have lined up, it includes reducing mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities for Black women renters in particular. Our Women's Rights Project is uh, leading some of that work to secure right to counsel and eviction and to prohibit the consideration of prior eviction records and tenant screenings. We are looking again at right to representation. This issue of eviction is one that is uniquely and disproportionately harmful to Black women. We are looking at source of income discrimination. And as I mentioned earlier, a source of income law would prevent discrimination based on the tenant's source of income, including housing voucher assistance, social security, disability, uh, child support. We also want to look at stopping discrimination by algorithms, focusing on the passage of legislation to prohibit companies and organizations from using targeted advertising and algorithmic decision-making tools in discriminatory ways that undermine people's rights and hinder their capacity to survive and thrive, and to make it illegal for companies to use discriminatory algorithms to make decisions about key areas of life, including education, uh, jobs, access to credit, healthcare, uh, insur- insurance, and housing. Uh, and then finally, we're going to aim to require those companies to conduct annual audits on their algorithms to document how their algorithms are built and to disclose to consumers how algorithmic discrimination decisions are being made. We're also, again, of course, looking at criminal justice, improving public safety by investing in Black communities instead of investing in punishment. We're looking at educational equity with an overarching goal of ensuring that Black students and other students of color have access um, to high-quality education, have access to safe schools, We're looking at voting rights, of course. The threats to our democracy are real and really incredibly emergent and expanding. And we want to expand voting access and build political power in Black communities and Black people and other people of color. And economic justice, reducing the racial wealth gap that persists over decades and over centuries. So just a few things. (laughs) Might keep us busy just for a little while. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that preview. As I mentioned, listeners, you can expect for us to dig in more on these issues. President Archer, Deborah, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much for this very meaningful housing primer. I know that you can teach a course individually on all of these separate things, but unfortunately, we all don't have the ability to take your class. So we really appreciate you summarizing and condensing and just giving us a nice 101 to begin our our housing conversations with. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to join you. I hope to, to be back and have more conversations with you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. 
Until next week, keep showing up.